Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to the end. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Gentiles, Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agapus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They, this they did sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. We've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is written by Luke. Luke is one of the four gospel writers who uh, took a, a camera, as it were, but a camera with words and wrote what uh, he saw and understood of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are four gospels that act like cameras to, uh, to reveal to us the person, the character, the promises, the nature of this person called Jesus Christ, who is a real person in history, the Bible claims. But all of us know that there was a person, the Christian Bible claims that there was a person called Jesus Christ, and he did something at the first Easter, and he died for the sins of the world. That's what the Bible claims. But, but what happened next? What happened next? It, it, after Jesus died and after he claimed to rise again and after he claimed to be seen by uh, hundreds of people, after he ascended to the heavens, that's the first act, that's the first true part of the next chapter in the story of Jesus and his church. And it's the church that Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, one of those camera angles in the life of Jesus, it's Luke who has been writing this book called Acts that you've got in front of you in the middle of your service booklet. You might like to have it to refer to as we look at it together. We're in chapter 11, and in chapter 11, something happens as Jesus has returned to his Father in heaven, as the church has been born, as the first sermon has been given, as the church is driven out through a persecution of the Roman Empire, and what happens next? Chapter 11 is what happens next. In chapter 11 that you've got on your lap for the first time ever, you've got the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. You killed him, Roman Empire. But God raised him. 
and we've seen him. That's the gospel according to Luke in the book of Acts. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him. And that changes everything. But here's the first time that uh, the gospel's ever got to a big city. Now, you saw uh, this name come up a few times. The gospel comes to a very big city, and it's called, funny name alert, Antioch. Now, Antioch was a massive city. It's the third biggest city in the Roman world. No offense. It's like Manchester. Manchester is in third place for the cities of the United Kingdom behind London, the greatest city, of course. Birmingham, boo hiss, unless you're a, a, a person that likes the Commonwealth Games or you come from the great city of Birmingham. And then there's Manchester, the industrial capital of the north, and all that stuff where there's at least two small football teams that have won the odd thing through the years. But uh, Antioch was the third biggest city. It was like it was like Manchester of the Roman world. It was at least uh, 15 times bigger than Jerusalem that we've all heard of. It was the capital of a place called Syria, and it was very densely populated. It's very multicultural. There's lots of ethnic diversity. There's lots of religious uh, diversity. It was economically rich and complex and important. It was a really important major city. And surely a city like that, like the London or the Paris or the San Paolo um, of the world. Surely a city like that has no hearing or no value on the message of Jesus Christ. But something happened in Antioch that had never happened before. You see God's power at work, and then you see people respond to what was shared. Let's think about the way God's power is seen in these sentences, shall we? God's power. Three things happen to show us God's power. First of all, notice the power to transform individual lives. Verse 19, sentence 19 in the middle of the reading. It says, when the missionaries went to Antioch to preach to the Jews, but then it says in verse 20, they also started to preach to the Greeks. And then notice this phrase in sentence 21, and then sentence 24, a great number believed. Verse 21, verse 24, a great number believed came to faith. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, this is the pattern. The apostles that Jesus gave the gospel to, they, they go and they preach to synagogues. They speak to Jewish people who knew their Bibles, who were expecting God to send a rescuer. And all of that had been promised for hundreds, if not thousands of years that we have recorded in our Old Testament, the first half of the Christian Bible. But this is what they do. They take it to people who believed the Bible and then they would respond or they would reject the message of Jesus. But notice what happens at Antioch. They go first to the Jews and then they went to the Gentiles. That's to the non-Jewish people. And it's there that there's a huge response. Many people believed. A great number came to faith. Lots and lots of people say, Jesus is our rescuer and he's our king and he's our Lord. We've seen this in the book of Acts. If you flick back a few pages, if you had a paper Bible or scrolled and got a bit of repetitive strain injury with your finger, you could go back to chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, Luke writes about a man called Cornelius. He was rescued by Jesus. You could just flick back a page or two and you would find another man, a Roman centurion, who uh, was rescued. You could see a, an Ethiopian who was rescued. And here you meet Jews who are expecting Jesus to come, a Messiah, God's King. 
And then also you're now seeing Gentile people. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is going out. It's making, it's making a difference, making a ripple like the paddling pool outside. And so these religious people in this great city of the Roman Empire are being changed, not by the temperature, not by a new emperor, not by famine, not by feasting, by a, by a person called Jesus Christ, and it's his message, and it's his truth. And many people, sentence 21, sentence 24, many people respond to the message of Jesus Christ who, who died, and then who was resurrected, and then who ascended up into heaven. That's the first thing. You, you see people respond individually. Here's the second thing. You see the power of the gospel to transform relationships. Look, when Antioch was built, there's some pictures on the screen behind me. When, when Antioch was built, it was built by one of Alexander the Great's generals. He's called Seleucus. And he wanted to impress his father. What do sons do? They all want to impress their fathers, I hope. But this one... He had a few more resources than my kids. And so he built his dad a city. Not bad. He built him a city and he named it after him. His father's name was Antiochus, And so he named the city Antioch. That's not bad. And he built a huge wall around the city of Antioch. A huge wall to keep the people inside safe and keep those that would do them harm out. That wasn't the only place where there were walls. Archaeologists, historians tell us that there were at least 18 different districts within the walls to keep the outsiders out and the insiders in. There were 18 walls that divided up the city of Antioch into separate uh, parts because there was huge ethnic diversity that as the Roman Empire had conquered the known world, putting everyone to the sword or everyone under their control, that was the choice, they all flooded into the great cities of the Roman world. There is only one God and his name is Caesar. If you acknowledge him, then you can worship your own gods. But he is the one true God, said the Roman emperor. And so what you had in Antioch was huge ethnic diversity because of these walls, these different sectors of the city because of where it was and the people that were in its external walls. It was multi-ethnic because it's close to Syria. It's multi-ethnic, so you would have Romans there, of course, but you'd also have a Greek quarter. You'd also, because it's close to Africa, have lots of African. There would be an African quarter. It's close to Asia as well, so you'd have Persians and Indians and people from China as well. At least 18 different ethnic quarters. So the walls on the outside to keep people out and the walls on the inside to keep people separate. But notice verse 25. Something astounding is happening. And it happened for the first time in Antioch. These high walls to keep every ethnic neighborhood separate, to, to kind of protect racially different groups at Antioch, as people, as many believed, verse 21 and verse 24, as many believed in the person called Jesus Christ as Lord of all. What happened? There were so many of them that for the first time, we need a new name to call these people. Because you've got Chinese people becoming Christians. You've got Syrian people becoming Christians. You've got Roman and Greek people becoming Christians. You've got African people. They're becoming Christians. What do we call these people? Let's call them Christians. Every nationality up till now had their own religion. If you were Roman, you followed the Roman religion. If you're Greek, you had a Greek religion. 
But for the first time in the whole of history, you have a religion that's not based on how you look or where you come from or the color of your skin or your name. What do we call them? Because now they're crossing these walls that's there to divide them. But the Christians, the Christians are coming from everywhere within these districts. God is doing something. Let's call them Christians because they follow the man, Jesus Christ. If you had a paper Bible, you could flick forward two chapters to Acts chapter 13. In the first three sentences, we meet the leaders of the church. And notice some names carefully. There's three continents represented. There's four different racial groups represented in Acts chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. Here are the prophets, and here are the teachers. Here are the leaders of the church. You meet Barnabas. Who's he? Barnabas is a Cypriot Jew. He's a bicultural Jew. Then you meet Simeon called Niger. Niger means black. He had black skin. He would have been an African man. You meet Lucius of Cyrene. He would be from North Africa. North Africans weren't black, but they would be more of an Arabic origin. Then you meet Manaean. We, we don't know a lot about that man, except he was brought up with Herod, which means he was a wealthy, upper-crust person. And then verse 2, you meet Saul. He was a nasty piece of work until God changed his heart. He was a professor. He was an intellectual man. So we have the first multi-ethnic, multicultural church. But God only does that 2,000 years ago. I disagree. This morning you've seen in a paddling pool from Amazon.co.uk, that's no product placement, you've seen an Italian get baptized. You've seen a South African man own the name of Jesus. You've seen a British-born Chinese Filipino say that Christ is my Lord. And you've seen a Malaysian Chinese lady say, I want to follow Christ. God still works. He still transforms lives. He's building a multi-ethnic, multinational church. That first happened at Antioch. It still happens in Epsom and Yule. Praise God for that. Because one of the reasons the church was growing so quickly because this was happening. God was at work in the first century. Because the gospel gives you something nothing else can give. And that's the word assurance. It gives you assurance. Christians believed in the first century and the 21st century that Jesus Christ is Lord who defeated death and therefore you can look death in the eye and you can have assurance that he will never leave you or forsake you. If you're a religious person this morning, you've come and you, you're interested perhaps, you don't know the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, you think Christians might be one of many ways for humans to get from earth to heaven. You can have no assurance unless you're a Christian because you don't know if you're measuring up. If you're a secular person here this morning, you can have no assurance, I'm afraid to say, because you never know if your sacrifices will be enough, whatever they may be. Because all religions, with the exception of Christianity, work like this. It's as if the gods in the heavenly realms look over the rim and they throw down a ladder and they say, this is what you need to do to get from where you are to where we are. Sort of like a ladder where you do all the work. Come on, you can do it. Just work hard enough. Just do your best. Just try your uttermost. But Christianity is different. Christianity is the only religion where God dove down. I don't know if you saw this story a month ago. Anita Alves is an artistic swimmer. There's a picture of her up 
on the screen. She's in Budapest. She's part of the World Aquatic Championship, and she fainted after her final free dive. She fainted, and she's heading towards not 60-centimeter deep paddling pool, but to the bottom of a deep diving pool. It's about five meters. She would die until she was rescued. Her coach saw that uh, she had lost consciousness the minute she hit the water. And so she dove in and she rescued her. She brought her up to the surface and this is what she said. She only had water in her lungs, but once she started breathing, she was okay. I think that's called an understatement. (laughs) Friends, that's a wonderful picture of the gospel. The gospel says we are drowning because of our sin. There is something in the way that we can never climb up the ladder to God in our own efforts and with our own resources. And so what does God do? He sends his son. Jesus entered into our world and Jesus rescued us from ourselves and Jesus rescued us from our sin. That's the good news of the gospel, which is why Christianity needs to be spread abroad with humility but with confidence and boldness because the Bible says it's the only hope for the world. And the first thing I want us to think about is it's the power of God that happened in the first century. First multi-ethnic, multi-age, diverse church. And it happened today. You saw it in a paddling pool at Stamford Green School. How do you respond quickly? This is how you respond. Christian friends, this is for you. How do you respond? You should be like Barnabas. Look at verse 23, please. All these people became Christians They trusted Jesus, they followed him at Antioch, and they sent Barnabas to him, verse 23. When Barnabas, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So Christian missionaries had gone to Antioch, gone to this new city with these huge walls on the outside and dividing on the inside. Because in a sense, God had pushed them out because of the suffering that happened when when Saul oversaw the persecution of Stephen, 8 and 9 of the uh, book of Acts. But look at verse 22. Barnabas came. Verse 26, he stayed in the city for a whole year he lived there because he began to realize something very, very important. In the Bible, Christian friends, there's a principle. Nobody does much for God. This is my paraphrasing. No one does much for God if they stay where they are comfortable and if they live in a place where it's purely their choice. Think of Abraham back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. God kind of says, you're too comfortable. I want to do something great through you. Get out. Get thee out. And I'll tell you where I want you to live later because I've got a great plan for you. All you need is me. And I've got you in the palm of my hands. You've got much to learn, Abraham, but get out to a land I will show you. Get out, leave all your security behind. Get out, leave your family behind. Get out, leave your pension pot behind. Get out, leave your car keys behind. You will use a camel. Get out and trust me. And he does. Jesus Christ, of course, was the ultimate minority who got out of his comfort. He went from heaven to earth. He became flesh And he let himself be scattered as he was pulled apart physically on the cross. And here's Barnabas, absolutely passionate about serving King Jesus rather than his own comfort. And what does he do? We'll look at these sentences, verse 19 to 21. This is how the the sandwich of the passage is put together. 
In verse 19 to 21, you've got people, the gospel's being shared. The good news of Jesus who died and was raised to life again is being spoken about, and people are trusting in Jesus Christ. Down at the bottom, the bottom half of the sandwich, we're still with the bread, verse 25, verse 26, you've got discipleship. I'm going to stay here for a year no matter what it costs, and I'm going to invest my life so that you would grow in your knowledge and depth of insight of who Jesus is. It's not about my comforts as Barnabas. I want to pour myself out into your life. Right in the middle, it tells us the key. Verse 24, Barnabas, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and he encouraged them. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's interesting to me, Christian friends, because it does not say that uh, Barnabas went down to Antioch and he just had a passion to tell people about Jesus. I'm sure that was in his heart, but that's not what's shown. He didn't go down to teach or preach. He went to encourage. He went to encourage. He had such an intensity of truth and love in his heart that it was like the fertilizer for the gospel to grow. Without him, the work would not have exploded. It was turbocharged as God used this man of God to encourage people to bless them with truth and with love. You will never grow, Christian friend, into the person God will have you be unless there are people in your life and in your circle of friends who are committed to your encouragement and growth. Anthony Joshua, the boxer, after he lost a recent fight, sacked his whole team. He said, the trouble is, I'll take responsibility for losing the fight, but but you don't have courage anymore, you lot, to tell me when I'm doing something wrong. You're all fired. I need a new team. I need truth, but also I need love. It's a problem in every culture. We're either people that love truth, and we can't deliver, deliver the truth people need to hear with compassion, or we're too wishy-washy, and we always say that's great, and we never tell people when there's broccoli in their teeth. The Bible says you need courageous people in your life, like Barnabas, who are committed to your growth who are supportive, but also who have courage to say, here's the truth that you need to hear. Are you an encourager, Christian friend? Are you an encourager in the life of someone else? Transparent enough about your own struggles so that you, uh, people feel encouraged to open up to you. But you're not so transparent that it's all about you. So you're committed to the growth of other people. You, are you a Barnabas person? There's so many Barnabas people in our church here at Emmanuel. Just want to encourage that to to keep happening. But non-Christian friend, if you're new amongst us this morning, here's a profound truth. All of us are very insecure, whether you're a Christian or not. We all have deep issues of insecurity, of approval, of need, of longing, and of value. And isn't it true, if a person comes alongside you in your life, and if they're not incredibly tender, if they're not incredibly patient and kind and loving, then all of us have just a myriad of ways, a myriad of defense mechanisms just to fob them off. Here's the classic. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. How about you? And you, you can do it, but it's been not even breaking your stride. All of us want love. We don't always want truth. So every culture is either rich in truth or rich in love. And so we're not changing, we're not growing. In the gospel, there is good news. Just like that, uh, the coach that dove in and saved Miss Alves, Jesus Christ dove into history 
to rescue us. The gospel, the whole Bible can be summed up in one word, rescue. It's God's rescue mission in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He gave his very best, God our Father. He gave his son. He gave himself so that God died on the cross. Jesus Christ says this as I close. He says to his disciples in in another camera angle, a book called John's Gospel that I'd love to give you a copy of. Here it is, that there's lots on the screen. And if, if you're new to Christianity, I'd love for you to take a copy. John, in John's Gospel, John chapter 14, he says this. Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will come and he will make what I have done glorious to you. He will come and and the Holy Spirit will point your gaze. He will grab your chin and he will point your attention and your affections increasingly to a man of history called Jesus Christ. who's a man of history but who's also God's son in history and for all eternity. Look at how he loves you. Look at what he's done for you. And that's the source of assurance and hope. That's the reality of judgment and conviction of our sin and rebellion against a holy God. Why are you so upset, Jesus says to his disciples? For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at what I've done for you. Can I challenge you with this, if you're not yet a Christian? The gospel is not something that gives you some religious insurance. It does not matter if you go down for three seconds or one. It doesn't matter if you're dunked three times or one. Christianity is not about a little bit of personal peace and happiness. It's something that changes you utterly. Because God has been at work in at least four people's lives and many more in this room and millions more in history. Jesus Christ is a symbol as he died and as he was raised to life again in himself of a new humanity, a new creation that he is the first fruits of and that our four friends this morning are just dynamic pictures of dying to self and living in his strength. That's what the gospel is about. A new humanity, a new counterculture where Jesus is at the very center that engages in the world in a picture of sacrificial love. That's what the Christians did in the first century. That's what they're still doing today. When God gets near a city in the Old Testament called Nineveh, he speaks a word to his servant Jonah, who didn't want to do what God said, like I don't want to, and you really want to too. This is what God said to Jonah. Jonah, there are 120,000 people in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. Should I not be filled with compassion for that great city after Jonah did something that he didn't want to do and and then God gave them grace and mercy and rescued the people when Jonah wanted God to zap them? Friend, whether you live in Epsom or Yule or Stoneley or London or a great city of the world or if you live in a hamlet in a rural setting, the grace of God can rescue people and it gives you a new heart And it will always give you compassion for a city or a hamlet or to the ends of the earth. I wonder what your heart's like this morning. No matter what your heart is like this morning, I'd love for you to take these resources on the table on the way out. They're free of charge. There's a gospel, there's a camera angle about the life of Jesus. Just take one. If you take it, please read it. And why not put one of these booklets in your hand as well? Life, it's a little booklet exploring the claims of Jesus 
and our thirst, not just for water or tea or coffee, that we'd love for you to stay around with, but our thirst for more in life. The more you go around this world, isn't it true that we're just thirsting for something that this world cannot give? The gospel says, Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save the lost, and he alone can quench your thirst.